Father, we thank you for workers. You tell us to pray because the field is ready to be harvested, but the workers are few. And we read that, Father, but until we sit in the role of leading and ministering in a church body, it never really feels meaningful until the workers are needed. And then you realize, Father, how true your word is. Workers are needed everywhere. And I thank you, Father, that you've brought us men and women like Jerry and Kathy and Jim and Cindy who have the willingness and the ability to help. But, Father, I pray that they would be an inspiration and model for more. I pray for all those in this body, Father, who have a heart to please you in one way or another and that you would encourage them and inspire them as well to move forward in some service to you that you call them to do. And, Father, as a body, I pray that we would support and encourage and receive that service in ways that only give us the opportunity for more. And, Father, we serve out of the strength you give us. We serve out of a knowledge from your word and what pleases you. And Father, so I pray that in the teaching we do now that I open up and present according to your will that you would use it to inspire hearts to obey and to please you and to work for you and serve you and to witness to you and to do whatever things you would ask them to do. Let this teaching be something that causes doing in the body of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, here's a good test if you want to know if you understand the gospel. Answer this question. How does Jesus' death on the cross become a payment for your sin? Why is that sufficient? Why is that enough? And the answer is simple. Because Jesus was sinless. That's the answer. Because the Bible says we die because we're sinful. That sin is itself the cause of death. And Jesus, being without sin was not deserving of death. In fact, did you know that if he had not given up his spirit on the cross, he would have lived forever. Nothing killed Jesus, the Bible tells us. He gave himself up because having no sin, he would have lived eternally in his human body, which is what would have happened to Adam. That's what would have happened to woman had they not sinned. It was the entry of sin that produced the death that came. And so being without sin, he had no cause to die, and yet he did so willingly anyway. And in that way, his death becomes a payment available for anyone else who would receive it, a payment for your sin. That's the gospel. And so the key to his saving power is his sinlessness. Now here's the question, how do we know he was sinless? Well, the Bible tells us he was. I mean, the New Testament writers say that. Let me give you four quick examples. John says in 1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. That's John. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that he might become the righteous, we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's Paul. Peter says, 1 Peter 2.21, you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his footsteps who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And then finally, the unnamed writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.15, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but rather one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. So you have four different New Testament authors who all knew Jesus personally, and they all attest to you that he had no sin in his life. But there is still another way that we need to understand Jesus was sinless. We can actually see it demonstrated in the stories that we're studying now in Matthew chapter 21. The intense scrutiny that Jesus underwent as he goes into the temple to teach each day and the week before he died, is our proof that he was sinless. 
Now, if you've been here already, you know what we're studying in this part of the gospel. We're in that last week before Jesus died. And in the four days leading up to his crucifixion, starting on a Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, each of those days he goes into the temple. And while he's there, he's teaching, he's healing people, and at each of those days he's also met by religious leaders who come to test him in front of the crowds. Their tests are these no-win scenarios that we're going to watch. We're going to study all of these tests as they come. They're no-win scenarios because no matter how he answered the questions that he was posed, somebody was going to get offended. He was either going to offend the Jewish uh, crowds, which would then set him at odds with the people he came for, or he's going to say something to upset the Roman authorities, which then would mean he's at risk of being charged by them. So these are no-win scenarios designed to discredit him and undermine his authority. And these tests are truly... A test. You know, you might sit there and think, well, it's not much of a test. He's Jesus. You know, how are they going to trick Jesus? You're not, you're not understanding how this works if that's what you're thinking. Hebrews just told us he was tempted as we are. So ask yourself this. What would have been your temptation in that moment? You, you know, think about this. You've got on your mind the fact that you're about to die on a cross. You know it's coming a few days away. How much pressure, how much anxiety, how much Uh, tension do you think you would be under in that moment? And then take that and add to it these yahoos who come to you in the temple baiting you to do something wrong. Now look, you might think, again, that's no big deal, but you're not being honest because if I put you in that scenario, how many of you would punch these guys in the nose? How many of you would tell them off, right? I mean, what's the temptation in the moment when you're under stress, when you're in an anxious moment? That's what real life is for real human beings, and Jesus was a real human being. Here's the difference. He never succumbed to that temptation. That's the difference. It's all the difference in the world. But these are nonetheless real tests. And as Jesus passes each of these tests, as we'll watch him do, he's validating his sinlessness. And in that way, he is verifying that he is, in fact, the spotless lamb, the blemishless, the sinless Passover sacrifice that he has to be. And so at the end of that four-day examination, he will be vindicated and go to the cross unnecessarily in the sense that he doesn't deserve to die. All right, all of this happens in the temple. And let's start there with our study. Before we go into the text again, I want to set up the scene for you. As we look at this testing period, it always happens in the same place, in the temple, in the household of God, if you will. And just to give you a visual idea of what that looks like, let's take a look at the temple. Now, I'm going to start with a picture here of the temple grounds using a model. This is a model that's built at scale in Jerusalem. You can go see it, in fact, at the Israeli Museum. It's several acres in size. Uh, You want to get a sense of how big it is. You see this little person down here in the bottom right, if you can see them, you'll get a sense of the scale of this thing. It's not full size, obviously, but it's pretty big. Um, If you go on the Israel tour with me, you'll be able to see that personally. Meanwhile, uh, go back in history, though, before this was built. When Moses was given the tabernacle, in the desert. It's a tent. And the tabernacle uh, was not very big. In fact, the actual tabernacle built to scale would be within the space of these first two sections. It's not a very big tent at all. And within it and around it, there were three sections. First, you had the outer courtyard outside the tent that was fenced in. And that's where the sacrifices were made outdoors. They were burned outdoors. 
Then inside the first section of the tent was the holy place. That's where you saw the, the menorah and the showbread. That's where the priests could go. And then another little section after that inside the tent was the most holy place, the holy of holies. That's where the ark was. That's where God's presence dwelled. Only the high priest could go there. But now, when Solomon was given permission to build a temple in place of the tabernacle, it became more ornate, became larger, of course, and in the process, they added another court around the first court. That new court was called the Court of the Women. And later, when Herod really expanded on the temple and created the one that was uh, visible in Jesus' day, he made it even bigger, and as a result, there was still another court added on top of the first two. So the the drawing I have, or the the picture I have up here, points out all of them now as Herod had them in his day. So from the outside, you have the court of the Gentiles. This is the place where anybody could go. As long as you observed proper decorum, you could come into that place, Jew or Gentile, man or woman. After that, you have that inner wall that you could pass in called the court of the women, and that's only for Jews. Only Jews could go in there, men and women. In fact, there was a sign on that wall that said if a Gentile entered in, they were liable to death, uh, to the penalty of death. They'd be killed if they walked through that little space. Then beyond that is another barrier. That leads you to the court of the priests. Only men could go in there. And after that, the entry into the building, which is where you have the holy place and the most holy place, that's only for priests. That's the makeout or the layout of the, of the building. Now, where is Jesus when he's teaching in the temple? Well, he's always in the court of the Gentiles. He stays outside in the larger court. Why? Because that's where the crowds were. That's where the money changers were. That's where the commerce of the courts were. That's where everyone was. And so Jesus would assemble there like other rabbis would, and he would hold an audience for a time in that space. That's where the beggars were. That's where the people who needed healing were. Every one of the scenes that we're going to see over the next four days worth of teaching, that is four days in the scripture, is happening in the court of the Gentiles. So with that picture, let's go back to the text Chapter 21, verse 14. He walks in on a Sunday, the first day of the four. He's not there for very long because he comes in late in the day, Mark tells us. But as he walks in, he's met by the needy who want healing. Verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. And he said to them, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. All right, so this is the first day Jesus enters into Jerusalem. This is again Sunday, the 10th of Nisan. And as Jesus enters in, we already studied, he upsets all the tables uh, with the money changers. And of course, this in turn upsets the religious leaders who make their money off of those tables. So now they're set against him, as they always were. And as he begins to work and and heal within the temple, they take note. Now, first of all, this was the natural place for needy to come and congregate and seek healing, among other things. Why? Well, first of all, and probably obviously, if you're in need of a miracle or you want to make an appeal to God for your own needs, where better to go than the temple? So that's an obvious place to show up. But secondly, The temple was the best place for someone who was destitute to go begging. Uh, If you were blind or if you were lame, you were usually destitute. And as a result, you lived off of begging for your needs. And if you wanted to go somewhere for begging, you want to go where there's crowds. There's a reason why people gather at the stoplights or in front of uh, malls, etc., because they know that's where the people are going to be. 
And there was never a place more populated, more frequented by people than the temple in, in Israel. And so it was the natural place to beg. By the way, it's also the place where you expect to find people whose hearts might be inclined to give. They've come with a pious attitude. They want to please God. And they might see begging and and giving to beggars as a way to do that. So it all works if you're a beggar. By the way, it's interesting. Today in Israel, Israeli law only allows begging in the nation of Israel in the old city of Jerusalem. It's a throwback to their ancient history. Anyway, verse 15, Matthew says Jesus performs these healings. And as he does, the crowd, the children in the crowd respond in this spontaneous declaration of Hosanna to the son of David. Now, if you've been in this study for very long, you know that is a messianic statement. That, in other words, they just said in so many words, Jesus is Messiah, right? Of course, and naturally that upsets the religious leaders. They hate it anytime somebody says that. They see it as blasphemy. And if Jesus had not been the Messiah, it would have been blasphemy, So they don't believe he's Messiah. They think the children are committing blasphemy. And so they turn to Jesus with basically a rhetorical question and say, don't you hear this? As in to say, aren't you gonna do something about this? To which Jesus says, yeah, I hear it. But then he says, you're not hearing the scripture. It's obvious these guys have not considered that Jesus is truly the Messiah, which is sort of odd considering the fact that he's healing people right in front of them. And here again, at the same time, you have mere children seeing the same things, and they have properly concluded Jesus is the Messiah. Now, isn't that interesting? The learned, the scholarly, they miss it, and a child, a babe, understands it. And Jesus quotes from Psalm 8 to explain that dilemma. In Psalm 8, David writes this, verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens, From the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. So David says this, God establishes his strength through the mouth of children. And what he's saying is this, God chooses to vindicate himself uh, against his enemies who would accuse him or or disbelieve by mocking their self-righteousness and their self-importance. And he does that by having wise, learned adults miss the obvious while having children shame them by gladly accepting the truth. Because you have children who can barely understand anything of theology. Isn't it a good thing, by the way, that you're saved without having to know any theology? Right, what would it mean to us if we had to become, you know, understanding of theology, we had to pass some kind of test before we were allowed to be saved by God, right? That would be horrible. Who would ever make it? But instead, he saves us while we're ignorant, and then the rest of our life we spend trying to figure out the doctrine of what happened to us. (laughs) Praise the Lord. I mean, that's the great way to work. It's like getting your doctorate degree and then spending the rest of your life trying to figure out what it means to be a doctor, right? That's why practicing Christianity can be as dangerous as practicing law medicine without a degree, right? We sometimes don't know what we're doing. Nonetheless, nonetheless, a child doesn't have that understanding, and yet God can, by his power, bring them to spiritual truth. Because the truth of the gospel, by the way, is utterly simple. It's not a complex conversation. It's, it's so simple, in fact, it's what stumps adults, that it's too easy. You may hear someone say that. But David says that the Lord is at work establishing his strength through the weak things of the world so that he can shame the so-called wise, which you've probably heard from 1 Corinthians before. 
And Jesus turns that psalm into his defense. He quotes that in response to his accusers, these men in the temple, to show them that God foretold that very moment, a time when learned adults in Israel would scoff at the work of their Messiah, and so it would have to fall to children in Israel to gladly receive the Messiah that the adults are rejecting. And I think this is why children in general may accept truths that adults are hard-hearted about. I think it's a sign of God at work when a child receives something that parents, in some cases, aren't ready to receive themselves. There's the old joke about um, the atheist parents and their young boy, and the boy turns to his parents and says, do you think God knows we don't believe in him? (laughs) And the Bible says it is a shameful thing when children possess greater knowledge or power than their adults. It's shameful to the adult. And there was a time in Israel's history when God actually uses this against his own people prior to the moment of Jesus. It happened back in the northern kingdom of Israel at the time when they got captured by Assyria. Right before God gave the northern kingdom over to their enemies as punishment, he told them it was coming through the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah says this in Isaiah 3, 4. This is God speaking. He says, I will make mere lads their princes, and capricious children will rule over them, and the people will be oppressed, each one by another, each one by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder, and the inferior against the honorable. Now clearly God is doing that for effect, right? He's not approving of that, he's using that. He judges his people that way. Children taking the place of their prior kings and princes, leading them capriciously. That is to say, capriciousness means having no uh, logic or standard, just doing things arbitrarily, which is what children do. And he says the youth will storm against the elder, the inferior over the honorable. That's what's happening here in Israel. The Lord is chastening his people and mocking Israel through the mouths of their own children And he's doing so in order to make a point to the elders. You know, earlier in this gospel, Jesus thanked the Father for working that way. In Matthew chapter 11, 25, he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Speaking of us. So when an infant understands something that a scholar misses, it draws your attention. And the thing it's supposed to do is cause you to realize this is such an upside-down result, it must be God. It must be God doing this. And so the first test that Jesus faced right at the outset of his entry into Jerusalem was a test of defending his identity. The man said, shut these children up. They're calling you Messiah. That was a test. Was Jesus gonna show that he's truly Messiah or not? And when he was challenged in that way, you notice he did not defend himself. He did not do what I think I would have done or others might do, which is to say, let me give you the five reasons why I'm Messiah. He doesn't do that. Instead, he just points the guy to scripture, And in effect, what he says is, I'll let the children defend me because that's how I'm gonna mock your ignorance. Not only were they ignorant of who Jesus was, he was pointing out to them, he says, have you not read? He was pointing out to them that they are actually ignorant of the very scriptures themselves that said this would happen. And look, if you wanted to insult a religious leader in Jesus' day, there was no greater way than to say, you don't know the Bible because they memorized it, literally. So in that moment, they remain silent in response to his, his response because they have nothing to say. He's just pointed out to them that everything that's happening right now is what God said would happen and they had no response to that. So he passes the first day of testing. And at that point, Matthew says Jesus leaves the temple and he goes to Bethany for the night. Now let me explain why he's doing that because this will be his pattern every night. He leaves after each day in the temple and he ends up in Bethany for the evening during these four days. 
And Bethany is the place, you may remember, of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. That's where they live. And so the reason he's going to Bethany every night is because he's got a friend who's got a place where he can sleep. You see, at Passover every year, Jerusalem was swamped by over two million people who came in to celebrate the feast, and the city is not that big. So they would spill out over into the hillsides around the city. So if you were looking for a place to sleep in that area, you had to go a ways away to find it. Let me show you a picture of where he had to go. This is using a modern day photography. I took this photo myself, but it's the best I can do because I can't go back in time. So if you notice the east gate, that's the east side of the old city of Jerusalem, and down that hill from there is the Kidron Valley, and then coming up the other side is the Mount of Olives. You can see where the Mount of Olives is, how much higher it is than the old city, and at the top of the Mount of Olives and around the backside, you end up in Bethany on the backside. We'll show a photo of what Bethany may have looked like back in the day on the backside of that hill. So he goes about two miles each night into a place where he knows he's got a place to sleep, And then he turns around each day the next morning and he takes that same trap back through the east gate into the city again and picks up where he left off. That will be his pattern now for the next three days. But before he reaches the temple for a second day, we move now to the Monday. Before he gets there on the second day, Matthew records an interesting moment that happens along the way back to Jerusalem. We'll go there now, verse 18. Now in the morning, when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Now stop there for a second. Let's understand what just happened. The first part's easy. It's morning, he's walking, he's hungry. Hey, it's breakfast time. That makes sense, right? And he looks across and he sees a tree with leaves on it. And as he approaches the fig tree, there's no fruit on it. And in response, he curses the tree declaring it'll never have fruit, in fact, ever again, and as a result, it withers away. Now, here's what's interesting about this moment. This is Passover time. Passover in Israel happens in March or April, roughly every year, and that is not the time of year for ripe figs in Israel. Figs there ripen at about the same rate they do here. If you've ever seen a fig tree in San Antonio, our figs come in midsummer, and the same is true in Israel. So why is he upset in April, let's say, that there are no figs on this tree? Well, it's because of the way figs work, at least in that part of the world. Uh, This tree had leaves on it, and as such, it was advertising to have something that it didn't actually possess. Because in Israel, when the fig tree gets a full bloom of, of leaves, when it gets full foliage in the spring, at the same time, it normally produces these little buds that are like pre figs. In time, they will ripen. In Hebrew, they're called pamim. And uh, pagim, and pagim in Hebrew refers to these little nodules, these little prefigs that are green uh, and eventually become figs, but even in the meantime, they're edible. You can eat these little prefigs even as they're green. The Song of Solomon mentions these, by the way, at one point, Song 2.13. He writes, the fig tree has ripened its figs. The word figs there in Hebrew is pagim. So it's saying the fig tree has ripened its little prefigs. So that's what he expected. When you see a fig tree with full leaves, you should also expect to have these little prefigs, which are edible, and he comes up on the tree, and in this case, there was no fruit. Though they should have been there, they weren't there. That tree was advertising something it couldn't deliver. And Jesus chose to make that tree an example so that he could teach a lesson to his disciples about Israel. In the Bible, 
the people of Israel are commonly pictured by three different kinds of vegetation at different points in time, and you probably know this. You could probably list them with me. One is the vine of the grape, the other is an olive tree, and the third one is the fig. These are ways the Bible pictures Israel. So in this situation, Jesus is using this fig tree and its lack of fruit to picture Israel and its lack of spiritual fruit upon the arrival of Messiah. So though the tree had leaves, it didn't have the fruit. And though Israel was acting as if it wanted a Messiah and living out the rituals of Judaism as if it was preparing for the kingdom and for the Messiah, despite all of that appearance, when he came to them, they had no fruit. And so in that way, the tree pictures the circumstances of Jesus' day. And that's what he's concerned about. They're keeping the law, they're observing the feast like the Passover, and here they have their actual Passover lamb showing up, and they're rejecting him. You have religious leaders teaching Israel, look for the Messiah, we want to see our Messiah, and he comes to them as if the the leaves are there ready and there's no fruit. All of that ritual observance was empty. And so as a result of the nation being in the grip of Pharisaic Judaism and self-righteousness, Jesus uses this little moment to help his disciples understand what was coming for Israel. Because just like the tree, this nation was about to be cursed, as it were, for a time as a result of rejecting their Messiah. And what would be the curse of Israel? Israel would no longer be able to produce fruit for a period of history. They're going to be removed from their land. In AD 70, that happened. They're going to lose their physical temple, AD 70 again. They're not going to be able to practice their law in the way that they are desiring. They're not going to be able to celebrate their feasts in the way that they should. God is going to strip all the leaves, as it were, off of that tree for a time so that just like they have no fruit, they won't be out there false advertising that they know something about God and they have something to offer the world on that topic. Instead, for a time, Israel will be desolate. Remember back in chapter 12, he says, I now leave to you your house desolate until you say again, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we can see the object lesson that he was trying to teach his disciples, right? Just like as this fig tree goes, so will Israel go. Because they said they wanted me and didn't actually have the fruit to receive me, they will have no fruit at all for a time. All right, now that's the historical lesson. But there is actually a spiritual lesson here for us as well. And in order to appreciate how it applies to us, we need to go a little further in this study to the next section. Because the next moment in this gospel relates to how it applies to us. Now before we do that, let me just clarify the timing. Matthew's gospel makes it sound as though in the same moment that he looked at the tree and cursed it, it also withered right there before the eyes of of the disciples, but Mark tells us it didn't actually happen that way. Mark makes it clearer that there was the first morning that Jesus walks by, Monday, and that's when he cursed it, and it wasn't until the second morning on Tuesday when they come through a second time that they notice it had withered in the previous 24 hours. Then this conversation happens at that point. Matthew, by the way, just combined the two into one scene for the sake of simplicity. But here's what happens, verse 20. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? Jesus answered and said to them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all the things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. All right, so apparently the disciples didn't find a whole lot of interest in the historical lesson about Israel, they jump right to the main point of, how did you do that? How did you make the tree wither? And 
uh, Jesus responds, you know, that shouldn't be amazing to you. Now, we might imagine the next thing he would say is this. I mean, after all, guys, you've seen me walk on water. You've seen me storm, you know, calm the seas. I mean, I make bread out of nothing. I mean, come on, this isn't that hard. This is like an easy one compared to those. No, that's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say it's as if, look, this is easy for me. He says, you could have done this. You could have done this if you had faith without doubt. You could have commanded a mountain to go into the sea if you have faith. In fact, just having belief in prayer will bring something about. Now, from that statement comes a lot of false teaching. And I need to address this up front before we look at it as it's intended. Because it's out there, and I think many of you have heard this, right? That a believer can get anything they want in prayer if they just believe enough. There's a way of actually saying this. It's become a, a, a bit of semantics now or a bit of, of ritual. You'll have people out there expressing it this way. I've believed on God for, and they, they fill in the blank. There's a TV preacher that says, I believed on God for a jet. And I got a jet, right? Believed on God. It's some kind of little way of saying, I believed it and God therefore gave it to me because I believed enough. Okay, that, that is an abuse of the text. That is not how Jesus means these words. And the abuse is built on an improper use of the word faith or belief. The false teacher has redefined it without really saying so. They've redefined it as a confidence in our desire or our confidence in our own expectation that if I am fully convinced I'm going to get it, then that's what brings it about. In effect, I have faith in myself, in my confidence, in my assurance, right? Faith in an outcome. That's not what Jesus is saying here. That's not what he means when he says you have to have faith. Remember what I've told you in the past. Faith has an object. The word faith always has an object. You cannot say, I have faith, and then put the period at that point. Not, not technically, because there's still another part of that sentence that's missing. What is, a, what is it you want to know if someone says, I have faith? In what? Because it's the what that has the power. If you have faith in the lottery, you, what is your faith in? Your faith is in random chance. But when you say, I have faith in Jesus, your faith is in the power of Christ to do as he's promised, right? It's not about your faith that makes it true. It's about the object that makes it true. You're just acknowledging your ob- that the object with your faith. That's what faith is about. It's not the power of our faith. It's not the strength of our desire that makes anything come true. If you want proof of what I am saying, there is a really easy way to find out. Go command a mountain to move. Have sincere faith that you're going to get it done. Believe in it all you want, and then come back and tell me how that goes. Now, if you think I'm being kind of facetious about this, let me tell on myself. I was probably preteen when I read that verse. As an unbeliever, I should add, but still, I don't know why I was reading it. I don't know, probably in some Sunday school thing or something. And you know what I did? This is no joke. I went out one day and I tried to make it happen because I wanted to put the Bible to the test. And I was told that this is how it works. And I actually, and it took, I was there for a while. It, it was something I gave effort to. Wanted to see a mountain move. And when it didn't happen, I just chalked it up to the Bible can't be trusted. It's just all nonsense, right? And then I felt foolish for having tried. I mean, I don't know how many other kids have done that, much less adults, but I did it. So I know it doesn't work. That's not how it works. No matter how much you want something to happen, that in itself does not make it happen. Try commanding, let's make it easier. Try commanding this chair to move. Or believe that a pencil will move. How about a grain of sand? Put a grain of sand on the table and pray that, God will, that it will move and believe in it all you want and let's see how much you get done. You see the point, right? We quickly realize that's not what Jesus is saying. And 
As a result, you have to step back and say, what is he actually pointing us to? He's saying that the power to do anything resides with God. That's not a hard one, is it? That we can agree to that. That we put faith in something. What are we putting our faith in? God's intentions, God's plan, his revealed plan of action. And as we put our faith in that plan, we become part of that plan. So when the disciples looked at the tree and said, I wonder how you could make that tree wither, what Jesus said in response is, you could do the same thing if you believe that God was prepared to wither that tree. And because you knew he was prepared to wither that tree, all you're doing is joining him in the work. All you are is a billboard at that point announcing the work of God right before it happens. You didn't do it. You were simply the one who knew it was coming. And in belief, that's why he said in prayer, believing. What am I believing in? Here again, not your own desires, but in what God has revealed to you in prayer that will come. And so God has asked you to know his plan, to abide in that, so that he can work through you in the accomplishing of it, and in that way we participate in it. So if you were, let's turn this example around for a moment, what if you were to go outside and command a mountain to move, and it moved? Who would you credit that to? Would you, would you have the audacity to tell someone that you have the power to move mountains? I hope not. What we'd be saying is, we knew somehow that God's intention was to do that miracle and we joined him in the miracle by virtue of simply announcing it in advance. And in that way, he put us to work in the process, but it was never our power and we can't do it on our own will. We can't define the miracles that are gonna happen. We can't pick the timing. We're simply joining God in that work. That's what he means by faith and belief. So God is not a genie in a bottle. We don't sit there and make the rules and then wipe, you know, rub the, the bottle and something happens according to our desire. And yet, what false teachers want you to believe is exactly that, though they don't use that terminology. But they want you to believe it because it feeds our lust and we like the idea of it and so we buy into it. And as we buy into it, we flip the arrangement. We put ourselves in the position of deciding what God needs instead of God in the position of driving us. It's what the enemy wants. Here's another example. Do you believe your seatbelt will save you in an, in an accident? Now, do you believe that because you imagined your seatbelt to be strong enough to accomplish that outcome? That your confidence in it is what's making it strong? No. Your seatbelt was made strong by engineers who had the power to make it strong, and you put your trust in those engineers to do their job. In fact, moreover than that, those engineers were following government standards for safety, and so you have your trust in the fact that they have followed the government standards. So in effect, you're trusting the government to save you in in an accident. Hope that works out for you. Meanwhile, your faith is not the point, right? Your trust is in something that you know is concrete, that has power, that is rationally likely to result in the outcome. And with God, rationally speaking, anything he wants to do, he can do. That's why asking to see a mountain move can be a rational request when it comes as a result of being informed by God that he plans to do it. So as a disciple... You amazed that God can make a tree wither by his word? You can do it too by his word when he's prepared to do that work through you, believing that it's coming. What's the key here? Producing spiritual fruit, which is the whole problem with Israel in that day, is a part of this lesson. Producing spiritual fruit. And the way you produce spiritual fruit is by understanding God's purposes, joining him in that work, and being with him in it. The Bible has a really simple word for what that whole process involves. Abide. 
That's the word in the Bible that describes what I just said, abide. Abiding in Jesus means listening to him, knowing his word, responding to him as he leads you in prayer and in other ways, and then being a part of the work that he does around you, joining him in that work as opposed to redefining it in your own way. You cannot name your own miracle, as I said. You can't do what you want in place of him. That's not abiding. That's going off-road on your own. And when you abide, you produce spiritual fruit. When you do not abide, you're like that tree. You're advertising that you've got something to tell people about God. You're pretending, in a sense, that you are a source of expertise in the matter of God. But when they look a little closer at your life, they realize, yeah, there's not a lot of fruit there. The lesson of the fig tree for Israel was this. They should have abided in the Lord so that they could receive their Messiah in the day that he came to them. And that's also the lesson he's trying to teach his disciples when they say, how did you do that? He says, in effect, well, if you abide in me, you can do it too. He has high expectations for your witness. You know, your witness is more than just leaves. That is, in Israel's day, what were their leaves? Their leaves were the the ritualistic, Pharisaic style of Judaism that they performed on a regular basis with no substance, no heart, no faith, no real understanding behind that. What's our version of leaves without fruit? Well, it's a similar kind of self-righteousness. I mean, you can go to church all you want. You can read this thing all you want. Be in every Bible study that we offer. Uh, You know, clean up the trash and serve with the kids and just busy yourself in all those ways. But if none of that is built on an abiding in Christ, it's just a bunch of leaves. It looks good. But what do I find when I find you at home alone? What do I find when I talk to you when you're not in this building? How do you drive? What's your checkbook look like? You know, we don't use those anymore. What's your online account look like? What, you know, and we all have our little issues. I'm not saying that you're supposed to be perfect. What I'm saying is this. When it comes down to it, is your life uh, this show of religiosity or at the heart of it, is it truly an attempt to please Christ by abiding in him? And, and we'll all live somewhere between the two, right? Well, none of us are probably as bad as we could be, and none of us are as good as we'd like to be. We're all somewhere in the process. That's what sanctification requires. But we are supposed to make that our life's goal. Earlier in this gospel, Matthew five fourteen, Jesus said this, you are the light of the world. A city cannot be on a hill and be hidden, and nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it will give light to all who are in the house. And then he says this, let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Those good works, that's the fruit, the spiritual fruit. And what is a good work in that context? It isn't simply the appearance of doing good. It is a goodness derived from God's direction in your life, something he asked of us to do, an abiding response. You remember John 15, Jesus says this about abiding, speaking of it in terms of a vine, using that vine analogy again. Here again, a vine being a picture of Israel, but also for us today, verse three, he says, you are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Now abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they may gather him and cast him into the fire, and they are burned. Now, one of the reasons I love this part of John 15, and the reason I'm using it today is that it has this unfortunate tendency to draw us into the wrong conversation if we don't understand it properly. What is the wrong conversation? We get wrapped around the axle on whether or not Jesus is suggesting that a believer can lose their salvation. 
Here's my experience. We worry way too much about losing or not having salvation as a Christian. Do you know the only people that worry about not having salvation are Christians? Unbelievers do not sit around worrying about whether they're saved. It's the very fact that you've moved out of a state of ignorance and into the light of the knowledge of Jesus and what that means for you. It's because you made that move that you now have some anxiety about not being where you are. It's proof to you that you're believing and that you're saved if you sit around all day worrying about whether you're saved. Get over it. In the sense of, instead of worrying about your salvation and, by the way, everyone else's works, flip that around. You should be worrying about your works and everyone else's salvation. That is, in the sense of evangelism. Right? And in John 15, the the subject here is not that of evangelism, and we know that, or or of salvation, because he starts by saying, you stand here clean by my word. He sets the upfront expectation. We're all in this together by faith. You're in this already. You're one of mine now. So now, what do you do? And having been made clean, the expectation that comes from that is now bear fruit. And of course, the question comes, well, then how? And he gives us the how. He says it depends on abiding. And abiding means staying connected to him. He gives you the direction. He gives you the understanding. He gives you the place, the time, the manner. He gives you the power and the strength. You cannot act independent of those things. You cannot go off and do things on your own. You know how you'll know when you do things on your own? <laughs> Whenever ministry gets really hard and, and doing it is, is annoying and fruitless and frustrating and you want to quit, good chance you're not abiding in Jesus right about that point. There may be some testing involved. There may be some things he's doing in terms of trial, yes. But often it started with you walking away from the branch, or from the vine, rather. And in the same way that a branch cannot operate without connection to the vine, we can't do anything good spiritually if we try to do it absent Christ. And therefore, the one who does not bear fruit, like the fig tree, will dry up and be tossed aside, Jesus says. Now remember, you're already clean. So what is he asking? What is he saying is the consequence? Well, what is the consequence of taking a a branch off of a vine? At that point, it can't produce fruit anymore. That's the consequence. The consequence is that if you dry up and get cut off, so to speak, by not abiding in Jesus, it stops all fruit production, which is exactly what happened to that fig tree, right? For failing to receive Messiah, Israel was dried up. Now let me ask you this. Did Israel go away? Did Israel cease to exist? Are they no longer God's people? No, no, that's not the consequence that Jesus ordered when he cursed the fig tree. The point was they would lose the opportunity to be a witness. Here's the way to think about it. No more false advertising. It's like a player in a team game like football. If you're on the field for the team and you're not doing your job, you're hurting the team. You're gonna get benched. You're still on the team, but you're not in the game. And in that sense, if you are the kind of Christian who puts out the leaves but doesn't have the fruit, it's false advertising. That's not good for the team. You're cut off in the sense that he will sideline a Christian under those circumstances and no fruit is even possible. Moreover, no leaves will be on that branch either. We'll just sideline you so that you do no one else any harm. And in effect, that's what I think he's saying here. And as a result of losing an opportunity, what's at risk? Not your salvation, not in the sense of fruit, but reward is... Reward for having produced fruit is now at risk. So in my experience, we need to spend less time thinking about the salvation that we already have by grace alone and spend our time thinking about how we're putting it to work in the fruit-producing effect of abiding in Christ. Jesus says that he has put in front of us the opportunity to serve, and I love the way he did it. He saved us by his own power. We did nothing. 
not only to get it, but to keep it. We are, by his will alone, by his grace alone, by his word alone, a child of God. Hallelujah, because if it had been any other way, I wouldn't be standing here. Now, here's the real kicker. He's called us to produce spiritual fruit, and now you're learning that, too, is done on Jesus' part by his power. You just have to abide in him. That's why he says that my yoke is easy, my burden is light. That's why he can say that. Because when it's his yoke and his burden, ain't nothing to it. He does it through you. But when you make it your own work, your own yoke, oh yeah, those are, those are heavy. Those are not fun. Well, give them up. <laughs> Let Jesus do it. Bearing fruit is actually the easiest job in the world, which is why he's called us to do it in his power. His grace never ends in this process. So as we finish today, take that away. What Jesus said to Israel when he talked to the fig tree is what he says to us as well. Advertise for me, yes. Be my witness, yes. But make sure that when they come a little closer and they look at you and your life and your words, they find the fruit that they're supposed to find. And you produce that fruit by staying close to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, uh, Father, I want to ask on my own behalf that you would forgive us when we step out of your light and when we work in our own power. As a man who's been directed to teach and lead others in their walk with you, Father, I confess that I spend way too much time doing this in my own power. Even as I teach the things I know are true, how often I forget them. Forgive me, Father. And Father, I pray for those who have heard this message and feel the same. We thank you for forgiveness and a new day to start again. And I pray, Father, you would help us walk a path now that abides in you when we haven't perhaps in the past. And Father, as you do that work through us and we're encouraged by what we see, thank you, Father, for the privilege of serving you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.